the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. All right, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to take a look at one small verse. Uh, we have been in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll continue here for a little while longer. But this really is uh, where we've been camped. The verse that we have this morning that is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is uh, the second uh, human concerned petition that we see. Jesus is asking us to pray this prayer and as we are praying it, he wants us to understand that it actually is a description of his kingdom. So last week, we heard Rick talk about the idea of praying for our daily bread and how that really was an economic prayer that was aimed at uh, releasing the captives from the empire and the demands of the empire. The exiles, if you will, that were caught in slavery to money and putting it back squarely in in God's economy and God being the one who uh, is recognized as the one who gives to us what we need on a daily basis and that it is freedom that comes with that. Jesus wants us to pray this prayer and to live out that freedom. So it's an interesting concept. It's a very short prayer. We term it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really our prayer. He's, that's, this is the one that he wants us to pray. So it's... Um, to be a prayer that would come from us with our whole being and it would literally announce his kingdom with the way that we would live this out. So the first half of the Lord's Prayer, uh, there are petitions that fall along the theological line of thinking or theological concerns. God's honor, his rule, his will. And the petitions in the second half are, are very much human concerns. So it's pretty easy to see that Jesus was not satisfied uh, if we were only going to pray for the most important things, like God's honor and rule and will, but he gives equal time to human matters. It's not selfish for us to pray about our physical, social, and personal needs. Jesus is saying, this is your father, and you can bring him all these things. Now, this specific Uh, Thought now, this specific petition is really about the forgiveness of sins. So I want that to be kind of uppermost in your mind. I know we use the word debt or the word debt is used in the passage, but we'll talk about that in a second as to how it kind of all fits together. The whole of Jesus' ministry up to this point and through it has been announcing God's kingdom and God's rule. So Jesus is living in such a way and speaking in such a way as to say the kingdom is actually here and now. God was at last liberating his people Israel from slavery. And certainly Israel wanted the end of oppression and exile that extended politically, socially, culturally, and economically. And exile really is this separation from God. It's being distanced and enslaved to another worldview, if you will, another system of thinking. And Jesus has come to say, hey, this thing all changes. The prophets of the Old Testament 
had stated that the oppression and exile of God's people was directly related to their sin. It was because of Israel's sin that they were sent into exile. And at this point in time in Israel's life, they haven't heard from God and from a prophet until John the Baptist shows up, and that's been 400 years. And they are certainly oppressed now by the Romans. And those within the religious uh, orders of the day were certainly understanding that being free and out from underneath that oppression was what they longed for. The prophets also knew, though, that the only way to be set free from this cycle of oppression and exile was uh, the requirement of the forgiveness of sins. Israel sins, and this is what God does. And so the prophets knew it would require the forgiveness of sin to break the cycle. Now, up to this point, forgiveness of sin was normally dispensed from the temple, all of, it, all of the religious life of the nation was focused on the temple. It was there that the high priest would once a year uh, atone for the sin of the nation and forgive the sins of Israel. But Jesus is now showing up and he's declaring that he's the temple and that forgiveness of sins is going to come from him. I want you to stop and think and just imagine for a second if you were well versed in your religion of Judaism and you understand the forgiveness of sins, and you knew your Old Testament, and somebody shows up and says, I have the power to forgive sins. Would you be just like, uh, wow, that's awesome? Or would you say, you know what, that's a scandalous thing to say. We know what it takes to forgive sin. This is absolutely a scandal. But that's exactly what Jesus does. The great act of liberation had actually arrived. This, with Jesus came the disgraceful advent of our astonishing God. Forgiveness would come through this man, and he would come in a very humble estate. And it wouldn't look powerful, and it wouldn't look like it was going to be political enough or militaristic enough to overthrow the oppression and to truly bring the exiles back, it was going to come through Jesus, a man. If there's anything that I would like you to picture this morning, it's this. That when Jesus asks us to pray this prayer, and specifically for the forgiveness of our debts, and forgiving those who are in debt to us, I would love for you to view this as the air he wants us to breathe. That's really what it is. Pray this prayer, but I I want you to inhale forgiveness and inhale it a lot. And as you exhale, perhaps, we would exhale forgiveness as well. We're to pray for forgiveness as he instructed, and we're to live in such a way as to witness to his rule and reign, the kingdom right here and now. All right, so in Matthew, you get this picture of uh, debt. In Luke, when he translates this prayer, he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. So you have really debt and sin uh, captured 
in the Lord's Prayer in, in two different authors in the Synoptic Gospels. Well, debt literally is a sin of omission. We haven't done something. And sin is a sin of commission. It's something that we actually have done that's held against us. Let me take you to Paul in two different books just to kind of flesh this out a little bit. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. It's just simply to get this debt thing kind of cemented in our minds. What does it mean to have this debt? In Colossians chapter 2, we read this. Verse 13 of 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In that Greco-Roman world, the record of debt was a written notice, and it went with you your whole life until it was relieved. The image comes from the notice being fastened onto a cross by Roman authorities when you were being put to death for your crimes or your indebtedness. So with Jesus, what Paul's saying is this record is actually posted, yours and mine, is posted to his cross. That's what Paul's saying. And no more debt. Those are the sins of omission. Well, how about the other way, the sins of commission? We'll turn to Galatians chapter 3. Paul then gives another description here of what that looks like. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one relies on the law, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So we have this full picture of what it means to pray the prayer of forgiveness inside the Lord's Prayer. It is to be forgiven of our sins of omission and our sins of commission. So it probably can more be accurately rendered, forgive us our failures as we forgive those who have failed us. It encompasses a fair amount of understanding and responsibility that that's really what we're looking for. Relief from our failures. So in this prayer, we have a few tensions that lead us to question, um, can I really take this at face value? Here's the first tension or question that needs to be answered. Is the text, or excuse me, Matthew 6, 12, is it transactional? 
Is there some kind of transaction that we're reading about here? This is what it says. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It assumes that we have forgiven someone and then kind of ties it and says, well, if that's what you've done, then you'll receive forgiveness. And so we in our minds go, well, if I haven't done that, then what would that mean? And we start to turn it into a work and say, well, the only way that I could be forgiven is if I would forgive others. But it really isn't transactional. We need to kind of relieve that tension. Prayer and life are locked together here. And Jesus is reminding us in the first phrase of our standing privilege of access to the Father. Who grants the access to the Father? Well, it's Jesus. And as we heard Paul say, when we were dead, God saved us. So this can't possibly be that I'm going to be held accountable for forgiving before I would receive forgiveness. No. In actuality, you are forgiven and so am I. If you would put your trust in Christ. You're forgiven and Jesus is reminding us and saying, when you pray to God to be forgiven, there is an understanding that you have access to God to even pray the prayer. If you don't have access to God, you can't ask for forgiveness. But we do, as children of God. So he says that before he reminds us of our standing responsibility of forgiving others. When we pray this prayer, we acknowledge the forgiveness already granted in the past, in Jesus' death on the cross, and then we get this writer, as we forgive our debtors, that reminds us that we cannot ask for mercy that we refuse to give. If we would not forgive those who have sinned against us, and we've been forgiven by God, that's called mocking God. That is a mockery. But there is an assumption here that Jesus gives. Let me try and say it another way. In this Lord's Prayer, it's at this point that the whole thing, this phrase contains an unusual thing. It's a clause which commits the one praying to actions which back up the petition just offered. Jesus is saying, my people will be known as the people of forgiveness. And you will know you're forgiven because you forgive others. If you can't forgive others, what's the issue? You don't know forgiveness. So let your soul be free for a moment this morning. If this looks like work, something that we pray and then have to worry about who we're going to forgive, if it starts to feel like work, I'm telling you, you're not hearing the gospel in it. It's not work. If it feels like work, here's what we do. We run back to what God has done for us. If it feels like work to forgive someone, you can't do it. Run back. We'll talk about that in a second. 
This is the central blessing of Christianity, this forgiveness piece. The central blessing of the kingdom. And it only makes sense if we are living by that same central blessing ourselves. So having received God's forgiveness, we're to practice it. Failure to do so would be saying in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived and I don't think forgiveness of sins has occurred. If we don't practice that, that's what we're practically saying. I don't think the kingdom's here and I don't think my sins are forgiven. Another way of saying this is that with this prayer, Jesus was saying that failure to forgive one another wasn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching, but rather it was cutting off the branch you were sitting on. We're in God's tree and on this branch of forgiveness, and we won't give it to anybody else, or we refuse it to some, and that would be like just cutting off the branch we're sitting on. So there really isn't a tension there in the text. But perhaps a second tension is even greater. And it's this whole idea of, okay, so maybe it's not transactional, but I have a difficult time forgiving. Or rather, maybe I have a difficult time knowing forgiveness. Have you ever felt that way? Like when you sit down and say, God, I need to confess this, and the word again comes up. I need to confess this again. I am not released of it. I don't feel forgiven. When was the last time you were forgiven? Can you think of it? Truly forgiven. Not, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about truly forgiven. When you confessed your sins to someone you had sinned against, and they forgave you. Do you remember that time? Do you remember what it felt like? Well, that's what we're fighting for here. That's the understanding we're fighting for. But there are some prerequisites to this whole idea of forgiveness. And that's probably where we get tripped up and why it makes it hard for us to forgive. So what does it look like culturally to kind of enter into this situation? Well, I would say just really quickly that I think... We've replaced morality culturally with a philosophy that, it, that says, if it feels good, do it. We've opted for a romantic worldview in a practical sense that just says, the highest truth is what I feel. And so if it doesn't feel right, then I don't want to be involved in it. And if it feels good, well, that's the highest truth that I have. I'll continue on in that. We've removed any objective morality, and now we're just kind of operating on that plane. I'm talking about the culture at large, what we get bombarded with. But if, it feels, if the philosophy is if it feels good, do it, then there isn't anything to forgive anymore. Maybe it felt good to you, and it didn't feel good to anybody else. That's their problem, not mine. You see how that works? Well, that's what the culture has to say. So if you get hurt by someone, 
because of their wanting to feel good, and you're feeling like, man, I wish they'd ask for forgiveness, that's not what the culture says happens at all. What the culture says happens is when that, when that person hurts you, it, you're better off to retreat into your own private world and just rethink your existence. Actually, it starts to have this vague notion of tolerance as being the highest good. Does that make sense? I don't need God to forgive me. I don't need to forgive anybody else either. Instead of forgiveness, what we have been taught now is the vague notion of tolerance. Could just tolerate the situation. Lastly, I do believe we're, we're in a therapeutic culture that has said, even if we get to the spot of saying, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, the truth is that I'm a victim and it's the things that happened to me that caused me to sin. Circumstances or people or hurts. Now, the circumstances and the people and the hurts are real. We have all lived those. But they're not the reason we sin. We sin because we choose to. But this makes it hard to ask for forgiveness when I don't feel like I chose. When I feel like it was just handed to me. And that I'm a victim of this situation. So there are some hurdles to this whole idea of forgiveness. How did Jesus handle this? Well, Jesus, with his life in parables, is drawing our attention to a fact about the moral universe and human nature. What he's telling us, in effect, is that the faculty we have for receiving forgiveness and the faculty we have for granting forgiveness are one and the same thing. So if you can't receive it, it's impossible to give it. That's what Jesus is saying. And how did he say it? Well, he did it as he taught. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15 to look at a parable. We would all probably know this as the prodigal son, but I would refer to it as the two lost sons. And Jesus is going to teach about this thing called forgiveness. It perhaps is the clearest place in scripture to see Jesus' heartbeat on this. Now, verse 1 says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the moment that Jesus sits down and offers by action forgiveness to sinners and tax collectors, he's immediately challenged by the religious institution of the day. And, and as challenged with, hey, that is undignified. You don't sit with these people. And yet Jesus is saying, the God of Israel is now willing to extend forgiveness to the whole of the world. Gentiles, and most assuredly sinners and tax collectors. But he's already getting shots for it. Well, let me just read you this parable, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So here is Jesus telling this story to get the picture out there of what it means to be his kingdom people and what it means to breathe in forgiveness. So let's just look at a couple of the main characters. First is the rebellious son. This is the young son. Technically, he'd received one-third of his father's wealth. Firstborn would get two-thirds. You wouldn't really get it until the father died, but he asks for it in advance, and it's given to him. And he runs off to another country, and he squanders all of it. He eventually ends up at a pig farm. And Jews don't raise pigs or have anything to do with swine. So this is the bottom of the barrel for this kid. And he doesn't even have any food to eat. And then he comes to his senses. He says, man, my, my father's servants don't even eat like this. And I will return to him. You know what he's got to give to his father? Zero. He's got dirty, filthy, stinky hands. And what he's going to capture is his courage. And that's what he's going to bring to his father. That's it. Before he even can say a word to his dad... What does his dad do? Runs to meet him. And he hasn't even asked for forgiveness. It's crazy. Let's just take a look at the dad. He's running. In Jewish culture, the older you got, the slower you moved. It was undignified for an old man to even walk fast. Running, the actual term in the Hebrew here would be showing your legs. 
And that was completely undignified. Here's the picture I want in your brain. It's a state dinner, and Barack Obama is hosting it at the White House. And he comes dressed in a tank top, Speedo, and, and sandals. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Undignified. Really undignified. I'm not even sure I want that picture. Anyway, I don't... <laughs> That's what it means for an old man to run. But here's a father who was willing to risk a complete loss of dignity, of gravitas, if you will, to get to his son. But here's what's even more shocking. He's running to greet a son who's placed a curse upon his family. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21, will tell you what was supposed to occur with a rebellious son in Jewish law. Does anybody know? Stone him. You were to stone him. Perhaps the father is running to greet the son because he knows if the son made it by himself to the city gates, judgment would be rendered. But if he was at his son's side, that would not occur. Perhaps that's what the father was thinking. I will protect him. So there's the picture that Jesus wants us to give us concerning forgiveness. It's one that places a grand picture on what length he has gone to save us. Certainly his finished work on the cross allows us to come to him and to ask for forgiveness. And maybe as we begin to see that, we start to lean in. And we start to say, actually, I might be able to breathe out forgiveness because it's overwhelming to know that that's what my heavenly father thinks of me. But it leads us to a third tension. And that one is this. If Jesus has already accomplished forgiveness for us, then why are we praying it again and again with this Lord's Prayer? Why? Really quickly. We're to live out a realized eschatology. It's a $50 word. That just means this, the study of end times. When God will restore all of the cosmos and he'll put everything to rights and justice and peace and mercy and truth will completely rule. There will be no sin, no death, no tears. That day is coming. And what Jesus says is, I need you, my church, to pray this prayer for these days because my kingdom reigns now. I want you to step into this as the advance guard of that great act of forgiveness that God the Father will accomplish. I want the church to pioneer the way known as the life of forgiveness. So how do we do that? We come to the table. We come to a table that the Father prepares. We come to his feast. What's the requirement to come to this table? What gets you here? Do you have no sin in your life? Is that what gets you here? No. Just one requirement. You must confess that you are a sinner. That's all you got. Takes courage, though. Dirty hands. 
This is your father's table. Don't come to the table with dirty hands. Wash them. Tell him, yes, I have sinned against you and against others, and I need your grace desperately. And he throws the table for you and I. But what about those other burdens that we have? The bruises, the physical and emotional things that others have done to us. They didn't mean to hurt us, but they did. And it still smolders revenge. It still smolders in us. We're bitter. What are we to do with that? Wash your hands. God the Father says, I want to release you from that resentment. Know my forgiveness and know that you'll release others when you forgive them. Live my kingdom now and live it at this table. It takes honesty. It takes a frankness and an openness. But that's what Jesus was saying when he gave us the prayer. Pray like this. Pray to your father. This is your father. Tell him everything that you've got. Your sin and the hurts that you've harbored. He'll hear them all. And he'll heal them all. This table reflects the truth of what God has done for us. And we pray the Lord's Prayer with this table in view. Jesus went around his world forgiving sins. And whenever people responded to his call, he gave them the instructions as to how they should live. As the new Exodus people that walked through the Red Sea, exiled no longer, kingdom people, forgiveness of sins people. You see, it's our birthright as children of God, as brothers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, it's our birthright to breathe in true divine forgiveness. And once we start inhaling the good air, there's a good chance that we'll start to breathe it out too. You can look at this table as a direct historical descendant of the shocking parties that Jesus showed up at. Same kind of thing. Showed up at the table. Who was at the table? Sinners. Look around the room. You're in good company. This would be like a party Jesus would throw. He knows all of us and our hearts. So this meal, in other words, is linked directly to all the meals that Jesus had. And in all those meals, Jesus was trying to explain what forgiveness is all about by telling the story of the running father. So this is what's for you this morning. Whichever far country you may be in, for whatever reason, you don't have to stay there one moment longer. In fact, if you start praying the Lord's Prayer with these thoughts in mind this morning, thoughts that have come from his word, By the time you get to the words, forgive us our debts, our sins, our failures, you will have already been embraced by the Father who has run down the road to meet you. This is why we come to this table weekly. May you know his forgiveness today, breathed in deeply and breathed out to all those that you're in relationship with.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this wild, scandalous forgiveness. We don't understand. But we do want to breathe deep. We want to receive the grace that's found in these elements this morning. And we want to wash our hands. God, if there's anybody here that needs to confess and pray, may you prompt them to meet the people at the doors and to sit and be released from those things. God, may all of us come to this table and feast on the forgiveness found in you. We pray this for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.